Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Brookside. And it's so great to see the baptisms again this morning, right? Baptisms last week, baptisms this week. What a celebration of everything we want to be all about here as a church, that we were, we're helping people find and follow Jesus. Well, earlier this year, a lot of us began this journey that, that we're calling the 365 journey, where we're, we're trying and encouraging everybody, our entire church, to spend time daily reading through the Bible in 2016. And assuming I'm doing my math correctly, which is always up for grabs, right? I'm a pastor, not a mathematician, so feel free to fact check this. But assuming I'm doing my math correctly, I think we're coming up on the halfway point of this 365 journey on Friday of this week. And so for everybody that's been working to keep up on the 365 journey, way to go. I mean, really, seriously, good job, because I, I talk with people all of the time who are just finding out the tremendous value of investing in themselves in reading the Bible daily, so, so good work. Or for others of you, if your reading has dropped off the last few months or the last few weeks, because some of the prophetic books we've been in, they just read differently, right, than the way we're used to reading as Americans. If, if your reading has dropped off, or, or if you're just brand new to this 365 series, let me encourage you to check out what we're doing and then pick back up today with where we're at. So, so there's no pressure to try to get caught up, nothing like that. Start with where we're at today. You can find all the details online and then pick it up from, from there. And today is actually a great place to start because today the reading is through Daniel, which is just a, one of all of the great books, right, of, of the Bible. And actually Daniel isn't just what we're reading as part of the 365 series that we're in. Daniel is also what I'll be preaching from today, so we're going to dip into it there as well. And, and I, I know I've been hoping this all week, is that as we look at this slice of Daniel today over the course of the next 30 minutes or so, that, uh, that I'll give you some handles by which you can understand what Daniel is saying a little bit, but also whet your appetite to dig into the book and read it, uh, on, read it on your own. And the book of Daniel is great for so many reasons. If you've grown up in church, you know the stories, you're familiar with them. But even if you haven't grown up in church, Daniel is one of those characters that we just know some stuff about. We, we, we hear about him, we kind of have some vague familiarity with the stories. I mean, Daniel is that guy who, who didn't get eaten by lions in the lion's den. Daniel is that guy who was in a position to speak powerful truth into some of the most influential leaders of the world of his day. Daniel is that guy who maintained a life of integrity and devotion and faithfulness in the midst of some crazy ups and downs, so some turbulence in his life. And so in all of these individual situations, all these ups and downs that we see Daniel facing, one of the great things about Daniel is that we see him maintain this steadfast conviction. Uh, conviction, excuse me, that God's got it. This steadfast conviction of who God is and, and where God fits in, in a situation that Daniel keeps finding himself in. And then what I love about Daniel is that it takes this same conviction that God's got it, that God's in control, that God's aware of what's going on, and it blows this up not just in the life of Daniel as an individual, but it blows this up on a global scale, on this macro scale to the, to the rise and fall of empires. And it applies this idea that God's got it, 
God's in control. It applies it to entire systems and societies across the span of time. And so everything Daniel is saying, it all drives home this same point that I want to spend a lot of time on today. Daniel is talking about this idea. He says, he says the battle is real. Evil exists. Opposition exists. Daniel is hundreds and hundreds of miles away in exile from his homeland. So he knows the battle is real. He knows opposition exists. We know opposition exists. Some of us may be sitting here today and we just feel like, yeah, I get it. I felt that even this week. But the Daniel always follows that up by saying, but the victory is sure. God's got it. God wins. And so this week as you dip into Daniel and read through Daniel on your own, keep that theme in mind. I think it will help you make sense of the whole book. And, and since this statement that the battle is real but the victory is sure, since this is what we're going to be spending all of our time on today or a lot of our time on today, teasing it out in different ways, I want to make sure to spend just a little bit more time here talking about it and make, making sure we're on the same page. Because this morning we're going to look at this statement on the macro scale. We're going to look at how this statement has applied in history past. And we're going to look at how this statement also applies to history as we look ahead into the future towards the end of time. And that means this morning, right, uh, pregnant pause right there. This morning we're going to be talking about end times stuff, you know, dramatic flourish. Because whenever I say that word, end times stuff or, or this category of Christian theology, uh, even just looking out here today, right, all of our minds go somewhere when I bring that up. Some of us just conjure up these sensationalist ideas. Some of us go to Bible verses we've had memorized or books that we've read. Some of us just said, like, what's up with that? What's up with all? We just go to all the questions we have. Or some of us, it was like, I just saw X-Men Apocalypse. Is that what this is all about? I mean, our minds all go somewhere, right, when I bring this up. And the thing I want to make sure to get in place this morning, the, the reason we need, to, we need to talk about this and get on the same page is because if we don't agree on a few certain things as we head into this on the front end this morning, we can end up in a weird, weird spot pretty quickly. Because, because some of us, we're like, end time stuff, your eyes get big, you're like, hoorah, let's, let's go. You know, you've, you've read the books, you've got the t-shirt, and you've seen the movie. You know, you're, you're all about it. That's the only thing you want to talk about. Others of you, you're like, I don't want to talk about anything except for that. And then others of you are just like, rubbing your eyes, you're like, the Bible says what? You know, the Bible talks about this? So, so let me talk first to the group that's looking for the exit, you know. So, so before you get to the door, hear me out. The, the cool thing, one of the cool things about God choosing to show us himself and what he's doing is part of that is God takes, takes history and he peels the lid back a little bit. Not always super clearly, right? Not always to the level of specificity that we like. We've still got questions. We're not going to be able to set our clocks to anything after we're done today, but there are times when God peels back the lid of history and says, here's the direction I'm taking things. And it's good for us to know God can do that. And it's good for us to see God does do that. God knows the future, and there's those places where he just reveals little glimpses 
of the direction he's taking things. And so just like any financial advisor will tell you to plan for the future, just like any insurance person will tell you, or if you're in college, your advisor, if you're in high school, your high school counselor, if you're younger than that, your parents, right? I mean, all of us hear often the wisdom of planning for the future. And so that's why this is valuable for us today. You see, knowing the direction God is taking history shapes the way we live now. Today, June 26, 2016. Others of you, though, you're like, uh, that's the only thing I want to talk about, Tim. You know, I mean, you're, you're the ones that eyes, your, your eyes get wide. You're the ones that have some hidden room in your house with newspaper headlines cut out, you know, pinned to the wall with all these lines of yarn connecting the dots. You've got the end figured out. For, for you, you know, let, let me just remind all of us why the Bible says what it does about the future. You see, the Bible talks about the future not to satisfy our curiosity or we can build some mega Excel sheet spelling everything out. The Bible talks about the future not to satisfy our curiosity, but to shape the way we live today. And so, so the value and the importance for all of us this morning is, is this. Just like the Bible tells us where we come from, because the Bible talks about that too, the Bible tells us where we come from on one end, so too the Bible tells us where we're going and where history is headed. And so, so as we get into this today, just know that for some of you, maybe a lot of you, this is going to feel like a little bit of an orientation to, to God's view, God's activity into the history moving ahead down the, down the road of the future. But, but even though it feels like an orientation, and as important as that is, as we see what the Bible tells us, know that we're going to come back at the end this morning and get very crystal clear on what this means for our lives. So we'll wade through some of the, the, the stuff that Daniel tells us about, about what that end of history involves. But we never want to get too far away from the so what question. So, so know that that's coming. All right, we good? Are we on the same page? I see a couple nods, so I'll, I'll take it. So now that we're pointed in the same direction, let's move into Daniel 7. That's where we're going this morning. And let's see how that statement we're looking at today, that statement that the, the battle is real, but the end is sure. Let's see how that plays out in Daniel chapter 7. All right, so here's what's going on in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is, is another one of those places where we, where we find one of God's prophets, one of God's people receiving visions from God. And this, this vision has four crazy beasts. Uh, if you remember, I was up here a couple weeks ago talking about four weird-looking creatures from Ezekiel 1. Today I'm up here talking about four crazy-looking beasts from Daniel 7. I'm getting typecast, right, as, as a preacher. But, but so, so let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 4 to 8 is where we see these beasts described. So the first beast in Daniel chapter 7 is described as, as this beast that's like a lion with eagle's wings, and it becomes like a man, is what the Bible says. We keep moving, we come to the second beast, we see that, he, that this beast is a bear with ribs in its mouth. And then, and then this bear is kind of raised up on one side. So one side of it is higher than the other. So you can kind of picture that visually. 
The third beast is a, le- is a four-headed leopard with four wings like a bird. And then the fifth beast isn't even identified with a particular animal, right? So we've seen lions and bears and leopards so far. But the, but the fourth beast is in a category all by itself. There's something different about it. And Daniel is freaked out by this fourth beast. I mean, if you just read through Daniel 7 on your own later this week, just, just look for all the emotions that Daniel registers as he, as he experiences and sees this vision. It unsettles him, what he sees, right? So, so here's what Daniel chapter 7 says about this fourth beast. Starting in verse 7 is where we see this. So Daniel 7 says that after, uh, um, yeah, after that, in my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims, and it trampled underfoot whatever was left. So, so this is strength. This is raw power, right? This is graphic language. It was different from all of the former beasts, and it had ten horns. So Daniel's like, well, I was thinking about these, four, or the, the, these horns, because what's up with that? There before me was another horn. The verse continues, a little one which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, this is one of those places where I'm glad that if we skip down a few verses, we see Daniel get an interpretation of what these beasts are. So skip down to verse 17. Because left to myself, I would have no idea what these beasts are supposed to represent, what they're all about. But, But verse 17 tells us. Verse 17 says, the four great beasts are four kings or kingdoms that will arise from the earth. And so when we put stuff together from other parts of Daniel and and we, we, we bake all of that together, we can actually know who these four kingdoms are that rise from the earth, that these four beasts represent. Again, when we put other pieces of Daniel together, we see that these four kingdoms are first Babylon, Second, the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Third is Greece. And then fourth is the kingdom, like, uh, the, the kingdom of Rome, or at least a kingdom like Rome. So, let, so let's go back to each of those and spend just a second on each one. So, so beast number one is the Babylon. It, it is Babylon. So remember that, that beast that was a lion with eagle's wings, became like a man? Other places in Scripture, Babylon is described as both a lion and an eagle, so it fits. Second beast we see is Medo-Persia, that empire. And, and, and people probably think that, that that bear that was raised up on one side, so one side of it is higher than the other, people think that indicates the historical fact that the Persian empire was the dominant half of this combined kingdom between Media and Persia. So, so, so that's where that mental image conveys something true about this historical kingdom. Beast number three, that leopard with wings, that is absolutely talking about speed. That's a fit for Greece. Because if you know anything about Alexander the Great, his conquering of the known world in his day was rapid. And then the fourth beast was a kingdom, Rome plus. We'll we'll see that Rome can't quite exhaust everything that this fourth beast represents. We'll get into some more of that in a second. But, But do you see what's going on here? While Babylon is still in the power, is still in power in the 6th century 
B.C. Daniel has this vision looking ahead centuries into the future. And he sees these kingdoms emerge. Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These, these empires that, at least in terms of international superpower and international dominance, haven't even gotten on the radar screen yet. So God is perfectly aware of history. God's got it. God's not caught off guard by anything. And Brookside, we need to hear that message today so badly. The same message that God is aware of what's going on. He's not caught off guard by anything. Because it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you sit on, whoever you're voting for in December, or at the end of this year, November, right? People are anxious about the elections coming up this year. We all have felt that unsettledness that goes on with, wow, there's this about this candidate, or, or, or there's that about the other candidate. We felt that anxiety. Or with England pulling out of the European Union just a few, few, few days ago. If you've kind of been paying attention at all the current events, you know the ripples that set out across the globe, right? And so all of this is just this reminder for us in a very contemporary way, that this is all part of the natural ebb and flow of history that has been going on for millennia. Daniel 7 shows us that even before those empires we saw came on the scene, God's got it. He's aware of it. Today, God's got it. So that doesn't mean we still don't work for change. That doesn't mean we still don't invest ourselves fully in the good of others, for the good of our society, to the glory of God, all of that good stuff. But it means we do that out of this posture of confidence in God. Because, because the alternative is this posture of anxiety and fear. And I feel like I'm losing control, you know? Brookside, let's be known as the sort of people that advocate for change, work for change, contribute to change out of a posture of confidence in God. God has got it. All right, so let's go back to Daniel 7. Let's see what else we can learn from this vision as, as we see some of this lid of history peeled back. Because, uh, because in the rest of the vision we see some great stuff that is absolutely worthwhile, worth, worth getting. Because as we keep reading in verse 9, we see that these beasts, they're not just roaming the earth. They don't have free reign. They're gathered in a courtroom before this judge, before God. He's called the Ancient of Days here in this passage. It's who these beasts are gathered before. So, so these beasts, Daniel just was reminded of how temporary they are, right? The, the, the rise and fall of kingdoms and, and how nothing is ever for sure, for sure. We see that something is, someone is. This ancient of days is. But even in this context, the fourth beast, we read he's still spouting boastful words against God, against the Almighty. I mean, what rebellion, what, what contempt, what arrogance. And so... So the response we see by the Ancient of Days is that he slays the fourth beast. The response we see by the Ancient of Days is that he, he strips the authority of the other kingdoms. And he hands all authority and all power over to one like a son of man, is what Daniel 7 says. 
And the spoiler alert on that is, th- is that that one like a son of man, we fast forward to the New Testament and we see that that one like a son of man is none other than Jesus Christ himself who receives all power and authority. Who has all power and authority. But so, so now we can go back to that statement we've been talking about this morning. The battle is real, but the victory is sure. We can see how that plays out in Daniel's vision. The beasts are real. There's arrogance. There's contempt. There's blasphemy. There's opposition to God and his ways. But the victory is sure. God wins. And the thing is, in Daniel's, in Daniel's vision, this victory isn't some long, drawn-out victory at the end of some 12-round cage match. This victory is as one-sided as the handing down of a verdict in court. God wins. It's not even a fight. It's that lopsided. The victory is sure. But then as we keep seeing into this lid of history, or, or kind of with that lid of history peeled back, we see that Daniel 7 then goes on to focus on this fourth beast, this fourth kingdom. This fourth kingdom, as we keep reading Daniel 7, we see that it culminates in a person who will be, who will be evil embodied. This fourth person, or this fourth kingdom in culminates in this person who exerts great power and influence. And he begins this rival reign against God and God's people. Look with me at verse 21 of chapter 7, where we read about this, 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 this horn that grows out of this fourth beast, this person who is evil embodied. This horn is just language talking about power and arrogance. And here's what 21 says, verse 21. As I watched this horn, again symbolizing power and arrogance, this horn was waging war against the holy people and what? And defeating them. The battle is real. There's casualties. There's collateral damage that's baked into this scenario. God says, here's what's coming, Daniel. And there's a time when this horn, this person who's evil embodied, wages war. That's the, that's the level of opposition that we see. And, and he defeats God's people. This is serious stuff. Opposition exists, and there will be times when it seems like evil is winning. We see here that there are times that it, that it does, right? Or at least it seems like it does, but not ultimately. And that's what we need to keep drawing our minds back to. The victory is sure, because right after verse 21, we come to verse 22, which tells us that, yes, the, the horn is defeating God's people until the Ancient of Days comes and pronounces judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time comes when they possess the kingdom. So the victory is sure. So, so when we put all this stuff together, we start to lay it out. We see that the sequence of events seems to be something like this fourth kingdom arises this, this person emerges out of that, and then the end comes, right? That's when the Ancient of Days steps in and says, uh-uh, you know, no more. I win, you know, no question. So, so there's this fourth kingdom, person that arises out of it, 
and then the ancient of days comes back. Jesus comes back, sets boots on the ground, and makes everything right. And so, so this is how we know that, that Rome can't fully exhaust who this fourth beast was. Because everybody's trying to figure out who are the beasts in Daniel 7, right? So historically, there is tremendous agreement that the first three beasts are Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. We've seen that. But they're like, well, it seems kind of like Rome, but it can't quite be Rome. And the reason we say it's kind of like Rome, but it can't fully be Rome, is because the end hasn't come yet. Jesus hasn't come back fully and finally to make everything right. There's still evil and there's still opposition. So what that means is that there's still a future fulfillment of what Daniel is looking ahead to here. There's still a future fulfillment of of what Daniel sees in this fourth beast where a rival reign begins against God, spearheaded by this person who is evil embodied. And then this next statement is big. What that means is that this fourth beast is ultimately looking ahead to this person the Bible calls the Antichrist. Right? Anti against Christ. Against Christ. In opposition to Christ. This person is the incarnation of opposition to Jesus and everything that Jesus came to do and stand for and institute. And then, and then the great thing is that other biblical writers... Not just Daniel, but others writing centuries after Daniel in a whole other regime, in another kingdom. They say the same thing that we see Daniel saying here in Daniel chapter 7. So the Apostle John says this in Revelation chapter 13, writing at the end of the first century. The Apostle Paul says this, writing in 2 Thessalonians 2. They all say the same thing that we've seen here in Daniel 7. So let's go to Revelation 13. Let's see... Let's see what God tells us there through his word, through the Apostle John. So Revelation 13, the dragon, that's Satan, by the way. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head was a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, and, but, it had, it, or, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Do those beasts sound familiar? Lion, bear, leopard. Those are the same beasts that we saw back in Daniel 7, centuries before the Apostle John is writing this. Continuing on. So so the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Then skip down to verse 5 of Revelation 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. There's the arrogance There's the pride. And to exercise his authority, not forever, his authority is bounded. He exercises his authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth, as John continues, to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. There's a lot of overlap here, right? And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. John is saying the same thing we see Daniel saying in Daniel 7. But let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2 also. Let's see the Apostle Paul, what he says, what what he adds to this, but also how he overlaps with what we've seen. 
So the Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians 2, is where we're at. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day won't come. That day is, is the end of time when Jesus comes back. That day won't come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's John's language for the Antichrist, until the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says this, And then the lawless, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow, I love this, with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. So Revelation 13 2 Thessalonians 2 and Daniel 7, they're all saying the same thing. God wins. The battle is real, though. And as we've teased this out over the course of the last few minutes, we see that this battle is a significant one. Again, with casualties and collateral damage. But the battle is real, but the victory is sure. So, so that's the orientation to some of what is coming as God works towards some future that he has for the world that he's created. But the question we, we again, want to come back to and get crystal clear on is, so what? How do, we, how do we think about this sort of stuff? Okay, this isn't just for our curiosity. This should do something to the shape of our lives today, to what we think about and how we live and what we do. So, so what do we do with this? We've seen that God wins, right? We've seen that victory is preceded by some sort of, that his victory is preceded by some sort of antichrist figure. But what do we do with that? Well, let me tell you first what the answer isn't. The answer isn't to focus solely on the identity of the antichrist. Because this last week when people heard what I was talking about, they're like sending all sorts of half funny texts, you know, like, so Tim, who's the Antichrist going to be, you know? I mean, that's where our mind always goes. But we're not here to talk about that today. Because one, I don't know if, if we can really know it right now, you know? Instead, I want to focus where the Bible focuses on the fact that Jesus wins and that some Antichrist person will arise. And because really people have been trying to guess this for 2,000 years, and near as I can tell, there's been a 100% fail rate so far on guessing when the end comes and who the Antichrist is. So it's just not worth spending our time on right now. You see, again, I don't know when the end will come. I just know Jesus wins. I don't know who the Antichrist is. I just know that he will be. So what I want to focus on isn't the who of the Antichrist, but is the how of how we respond. What do we do? What difference should this make in our lives? So let's, let's go to three quick takeaways that I've got for us today. We're going to fly through these, but, that, but, but the speed with which we cover them doesn't take away at all, at all, from how important these things are. So the first takeaway is that we remember that God is always in control. God is always in control. Every place we look in Scripture, 
we see that God is in control, victory is sure, and evil never ultimately stands a chance. Remember the language we've seen even today about what that victory looks like? It's the handing down of a verdict. It's the breath of his mouth. It is the splendor of his coming. This isn't some long, drawn-out victory. This is sure. This isn't up for grabs. God wins. And we need to make sure and keep this in focus, in focus instead of getting paralyzed by fear about, about the upcoming elections or about world events or, or current trends that we see in our culture. Again, work for change in all of those areas. Work for good, for the glory of God and the good of others, yes. But do it anchored in this conviction that God is in control rather than out of this posture of fear, anxiety, doubt, and letting that paralyze you. Because we, we know that can happen if we don't draw ourselves back to this truth that God is in control. I love how this truth, I mean, I just imagine how that looks played out over the course of weeks and months when people steadfastly hang on to this idea that God is in control. Because in a culture that is characterized by polarization and turbulence and anxiety and fear and all these things that we can all think of actual events and faces and names that are characterized by that, right? How much can the people of God, how much can this church stand out distinctly and winsomely? By saying, I don't know how everything's going to play out. And I'm not going to be up here and guarantee that everything is going to get better, you know, before it ultimately gets better, before Jesus comes back. I can't say that, but I can say God wins. I can say God's got it. I can say God is in control. Let that motivate our posture as we interact with the wider world. I, I, I think that would have a tremendous influence on a watching world, saying, how are Christians responding to all of this? Second takeaway is focus on Jesus. Focus on Christ. So earlier this week, I was uh, talking with a couple law enforcement officers. Hang with me here for a second. It'll all make sense in like one minute or less, you know. Talking with a couple law enforcement officers just to confirm something that I thought I already knew, but figured before I tell a whole lot of people on a Sunday morning, better fact check this. So, so, so I just asked them, hey, when we're dealing with counterfeits, like, like counterfeit money, for example, specifically in this situation, what, what's the best way to identify and avoid a counterfeit? And the two guys that I talked with, their number one answer, both of them, was like, the best way to identify a counterfeit isn't to focus on the counterfeit. The best way to avoid a counterfeit is to be so familiar, so aware of, of real money that we just know the way it feels. We know the way it looks. That, that because of that, we can sniff out anything that isn't really real money. So, so there's a great parallel here to what we're talking about this morning. As we talk about the end times stuff and as, as we talk about the Antichrist, the way forward with this isn't to focus on the Antichrist. It's not to focus on the counterfeit. The best way to move forward as we think about the end, whether that comes soon or thousands and thousands of years in the future, the best way to move forward and let this affect our lives today is to focus on Jesus. So the, so the question that arises out of this takeaway is what do I need to do this week to bring myself back to center, to focus on Jesus, 
instead of whatever headline you want to focus on. You know, I mean, that stuff isn't unimportant. Don't hear me say that. But what can we do to focus most on Jesus? Third takeaway is that we run all the way through the finish line. When I was in high school, I ran cross country for one year, long enough to realize that running long distances isn't that fun, you know. Uh, but more importantly, for all of you marathoners out there, more importantly to realize that I, I ain't no good at running long distances, you know. So I ran for a year, have tried to uh, repress as much of that year as I can. But one of the things that still stands out to me is our coach constantly pleading with us, run all the way through the finish line. At the end of a long race, you're tired, sometimes it's uphill, you're spent, whatever it is, there's some people ahead of you, some people behind you. Run all the way through the finish line. Persevere, finish strong. And so that's what I want to encourage all of us towards today as well. Because the Bible coaches us in the same direction. Run all the way through to the end. Yes, it might get tough. I can't promise anything else. It might get tough. But the victory is sure. And, and oh, what a victory it is. Last weekend or whenever it was, a couple weekends ago, my family and I ran the Royal Family Happy Camper Run that, uh, that, we, did, uh, that we did here at Zerinsky in Omaha. And it was a great run with my boys. They were tired, spent, like, man, this is long. So we were running. They were struggling. But the second we crossed that, uh, that corner, saw the finish line, there was a whole line of people waiting to cheer them on. They saw the games. They saw the food. They saw, they saw the end, right? And they just started sprinting, you know. They weren't spent anymore. And so what I want to have for all of us, if you've had a tough week or a tough month and you're like, I feel the opposition. I feel the battle. Let me just hold out in front of us the victory that God has for those who follow Jesus and place their faith in him. That victory is sure. So, so today we've seen how important this end times stuff is, haven't we? Not only do we get a glimpse into what God is doing in the future, but, but just as importantly, we've seen what that means for our lives today. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the, for the way you've taken the initiative to show us the direction history is going. Father, I thank you for also showing us what that means for the way we live our lives today. So Jesus, quickly, I just ask that you would help us just grow in this conviction that the battle is real, but the victory is sure. Jesus, help us remember that God is always in control. Help us to focus on you, Jesus, in all the ups and downs of our daily lives. And help us to finish well and run all the way through that finish line. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.